Our second lesson comes to us from the Gospel according to John, chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. Listen now for the word of God. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me, I have given to them. And they have received them, and know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf. I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be Will you pray with me? Holy One, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I was watching the coronation the other day, and I began thinking, you know, when you become a king, they give you a crown made of precious metals and encrusted with as many jewels as they can find. Throughout much of history and most of the world, if you became a bride or a groom, then on your special day, they would weave together a wreath of flowers and put it on your head. If you win the beauty pageant, they will put a glittering tiara right through the lacquer of your hair. <laughs> and if you win the Olympics or a great battle, they might give you a chaplet of laurel leaves. If you become a saint, they will paint your picture with a halo behind your head. And all of these things, all these symbols, are so powerful that anyone, almost anywhere in the world, will know what they mean the moment that they see them. They will know that you or the people around you or maybe even God, God's self, they will know that somebody 
thinks that you are a step or two closer to heaven than everyone else around you. They'll say that you have been covered in glory. What they will not do, probably, is ask, why is it always a hat that does it? Why is it our heads that get crowned, that get tiara'd, that get haloed? Why isn't it our wrists? There's a good a body part as anything else, right? Why isn't it a great cloak that we put over someone when we want to cover them in glory? Why does someone not own pants of glory? No one knows for sure why hats became the thing to set people who are special apart from everyone else. But they suspect it might have something to do with what would happen if you were to climb a high mountain, the highest mountain you can find, one that's high enough to get you above the cloud layer. Climb a high mountain and stand with a low sun at your back and look down at the clouds below you. And if you do that, you will see your own shadow spread out across those clouds. And around your head, you will see a perfect circle of a rainbow. And no matter where you step, to your left or to your right, you will see that rainbow halo around you. Someone standing next to you will not see it around your head. They'll see it around their own head, but not around yours. And guess what this optical phenomenon is called? A glory. No one knows exactly why it happens. That's part of the fun about it. Even the smartest physicists in the world can't quite explain it. Although they know it has something to do with the sun shining through the water droplets of the cloud and the light being refracted and bent back to you. But what makes a glory different than a normal rainbow is that it only forms around your shadow. It comes back in such a way that it comes to the prism of your eyes so it looks like it's only around your head not around your body or your arms or your legs. It's only around your head, this glory. And they think that maybe that has something to do with why we decided that hats were the way to go. Because we're trying to mimic what people saw there in the clouds when they were high in the sky, as, as close to God as they can get when they had passed through the troubles of the darkness and emerged into the sun and saw themselves crowned with the light of the sun. And all those hats, the crowns, the tiaras, the, the halos, are all attempts to mimic what you could see if you were standing on top of that mountain. All of them are derivative of that experience. Just like all the glory on earth, they say, is derivative of the glory of God. 
I think Isaiah is describing this glory phenomenon in our call to worship. When he talks about thick darkness covering the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear over you. In that reading we just heard, that long, convoluted reading, glory comes up over and over and over. And I don't know about you, but I'm not really crazy about the word glory. I certainly wouldn't use it three versions of it six times in seven sentences in a climactic moment of a gospel I was writing. Glory, glorify, glorify thy, glorify thou, glorify thee, glorify me. Majesty, splendor, glory. I don't know how to deal with these words. They seem like the names for dishwashing liquids. They seem like words that you'd find in travel brochures at rest areas on your way to the Smoky Mountains. I mean, maybe it's just an old word, glory. And it used to be a great word, but it just feels empty to me. Jesus says it over and over, glory, 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 but he doesn't say exactly what it means. What is glory? Well, we know it has something to do with honor, with praise and adulation of the people, to be sure. Homer describes it as the fames of men. Greek mythology claims that the gods demand it, like Zeus or Aphrodite, you know, those gods with long blonde hair and muscles. And those who wrote scripture seem to think that glory looks like light that it shines and it glitters and it glows. But Jesus says something interesting. Buried in the middle of this prayer here, I don't know if you caught it. He said, glorify me with the glory that I had before the world was created. And when Jesus is talking about the world, he's not simply talking about this planet. When he says before the world was created, he means before any of it was here, before creation itself existed. And if that's what he's talking about, the glory that he had back then, whatever it was, had nothing to do with light. I mean, God hadn't said, let there be light in the biblical story yet, right? So whatever that glory is, it's not just shining, it's not just shimmering, it's not just glittering and glowing, it's, it's something else. And whatever it is, it happens in the dark. Which if you think about it is where God does some of God's best work. When God was brooding over the face of the waters like a mother hen, there in the beginning before there was light, imagining creation, humming it into being. 
when God was knitting Jesus together there in the darkness of Mary's womb. John's gospel begins by saying that the word was in the beginning with God, but we didn't see God's glory until that word became flesh. And that's kind of a crazy thing to say. Sort of the opposite direction that you'd expect to hear about God's glory. Glory isn't the transformation of mortal flesh into divine majesty. It's the opposite. It's the majesty becoming flesh. It's in the the big thing getting smaller. The big, divine, unlimited, unknowable God getting human, limited, mortal, flesh. It's wild. That's the glory of God in the Gospel of John. We have seen God's glory in the Word become flesh. And then when Jesus says, glorify me, He means actually for God to lift him up to be crucified. In the Gospel of John, God's glory is the cross. That's so strange. Because crucifixion was a long, drawn-out process of public humiliation. Each step systematically deprived the one of being crucified of honor and power. I don't think that's the type of glory that the Greek gods were after. It's not Zeus on the highest throne with a bucket full of thunderbolts and divine ichor flowing through his veins, feasting on sweet ambrosia. No, as Reverend Debbie Blue puts it, the glory of God in the Gospel of John doesn't shine, it bleeds. They say that when Jesus was crucified that day, the sun went out. And we always assume that that means that the skies themselves were mourning in horror over what happened. But what if that just means that God was closing God's eyes to gather God's thoughts before the next great thing? God does God's best work in the dark. In the tomb there for those three days when God was pulling salvation out of murder and death, when the forces of law and order had destroyed God's self, there in the darkness of the tomb, God changed everything. When God emerged, it wasn't into bright sunlight. No, it was in to the darkness right before the dawn, still so dark that Mary couldn't even recognize Jesus there in front of her. And when he appeared over and over to the disciples, he did it in an upper room or before dawn or in the middle of the night. Glorify me so that I can glorify you, Jesus says. But what if what what he means isn't giving him a shining halo What if he means to cover him in shadows? Because even the glory that you see when you climb that high mountain depends on a shadow for it to work. 
You have to climb through the densest of clouds. You have to look down into the shadows with the light to the back of you. The light is there too, but it's working with the shadows to bend what you see and give you a vision of loveliness you could not imagine if you had not seen it for yourself. Glory, how we usually think about it, is about being distinct. It's about being better than. It's about being separated out from the pack for something greater. But God's glory goes in the opposite direction. The glory that Jesus prays for here is that they may be one as I and the Father are one. It's, it's a glory that, that, that they're in each other. And he prays that we might be in him and he in us. It's all fairly intimate sounding. It's not about separation. It's about union. The glory is in what unites us, not what separates us out. It's in what brings us together. It's God with us thoroughly in mortality, skin, blood, suffering, death. I think the glory of God might be offensive to us. The word became flesh, weakish. The great immortal God becoming like any other needy human being. We're needy at our core in a big way. I'm not sure we like that too much. We don't love our need or, or anybody else's need, really. Maybe it makes us feel inadequate or something. I think we want relationship. We want love. We just can't stand our own need. We'd rather have this glory system that works according to merit, where you can at least work your way up to something, where you get glory by being better than other people. Glory goes to the winner. We're not going to humiliate ourselves by needing, by needing love. We aren't very often fools for love. But God doesn't act like we do. God is so much a fool for love, so thoroughly chooses to be with us, chooses to give up power and honor, chooses to go to humiliating lengths in pursuit of us, dies on the cross for the sake of unity, and so I wonder, what if the point is not to overcome suffering, but to enter into it? What if God's glory is less about shining and more about shadows? Well-known Christian philosopher Nicholas Wolterstorff wrote a book titled Lament for a Son, which is an account of his own grief for his 25-year-old son's death. In it, he writes, God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. 
It is said of God that no one can behold his face and live. And I always thought this meant that no one could see his splendor and live. But a friend said perhaps it meant that no one could see his sorrow and live. Or perhaps his sorrow is his splendor. And great mystery to redeem our brokenness and lovelessness, the God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power, but sent his beloved son to suffer like us through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil. Instead of explaining our suffering, he says, God shares it. Jesus points us in this direction at the very end of his gospel passage. It is in them, he says, that I have been glorified. The cross Christ bore was ours. The weight of it, our sin. And so too, our way to glory lies not in ourselves, but those we have come to serve. We're glorified not just in our own sufferings, through our own crosses, but we're glorified when we share in our neighbor's suffering, when we pick up the crosses that are not our own. And so maybe if we're going to do something special to the heads of people who are special, maybe if we want to imagine what the glory of God is like, we shouldn't imagine rhinestones and gems and precious metals. Maybe what we should imagine is the mourning veil. Maybe what we should imagine is the tears of the brokenhearted that fall down their cheeks. Maybe the glory of God looks more like the matted hair of somebody who has been entrapped in their apartment with depression for weeks. Maybe it looks like the head bent over at the news that parenthood is not an option. If we're going to imagine what the glory of God looks like, if we're going to be glorified ourselves so that we can glorify God, maybe we ought to imagine something more like broken hearts and small acts of bravery. Maybe it shouldn't be trumpets blaring, but tears falling. Maybe it shouldn't be parades down the high street, but sitting next to someone at the morning bench. Maybe it shouldn't be shining, at least not all the times. Maybe it should be in the shadows. Here's the essence of the good news of the gospel. We don't have to wait and gain merit for glory. We don't have to play the glory game nor do we have to be lifted out of our sufferings, our sorrows, our hardships in order to see glory. In fact, the gospel suggests that those are the very places where we can expect to see glory more often than not. I once read this story from a surgeon named Richard Seltzer. One day, Seltzer had to remove a tumor from the cheek of a young woman. And after the surgery, the woman was in bed, her post-operative mouth twisted in a palsied, clownish way. 
A tiny twig of the facial nerve had been severed in the operation, releasing a muscle that led to her mouth. Her young husband was in the room along with the surgeon, and, and the woman asked, will my mouth always be like this? Yeah, the doctor said. The nerve was cut. And she nodded, fell silent, and looked broken. But then the young husband smiled gently and said, I like it. It's kind of cute. And all at once, Dr. Seltzer writes, I knew who this young man was. The doctor saw Jesus in this man. He saw Jesus in the man's gentleness and love, in his sympathy and brokenness. And then he saw Jesus afresh as the husband bent down to kiss her crooked mouth, carefully twisting his own lips to accommodate her lips, showing her that their kiss still worked and always will. Glory infused the hospital room that day. The glory of God's one and only who came to dwell in the muck of humanity by taking on the nature of a servant. We have seen his glory. We still see his glory. It's all around us. You don't need mountains or clouds. Christ has fulfilled the words of the prophet Isaiah that every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain be made low, that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed to all peoples. Let's see it together. You need not reach for glory because it has come to dwell with us, even in the valley of our shadows. It is Christ, the one who is in us and us in him, the one who comes into his glory with his wounds still visible. This is the glory we see. Thanks be to God. Amen.